Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Good evening. My name's Judith, and I am an alcoholic. Before I start, I just have to say a couple thank yous to my host, Mark, who drove all over today and and uh, picked me up and brought me here and got me settled. And it was took me to lunch at Pike's Peak, Peak's Pike, Pike, whatever, Market. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I had a really great time. I want to thank this little crew here um, for coming out tonight. We actually, due to technology, share the same Wednesday night meeting. They're here, and I'm in North Dakota. And it's almost like meeting a, another home group right here in person for the first time. So it's great seeing you guys. Thank you to the committee. Thank you for um, uh, this meeting. I um, I don't want to say that I'm honored to be here because then it seems like I did something to get here, and uh, and I didn't. Um, but I am so extremely grateful to be here, and I am grateful to do anything today uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous. That wasn't always the case. I hated you all, uh, and and I will get into that in a moment. Um, I have a sobriety date, and that is January the 19th, 2009, and I, um, you can applaud yourself on that, (laughs) and I have a sponsor, who has a sponsor, who has a sponsor, and I also am privileged to sponsor women, and the only reason I say that is I don't take pride in a sponsor line or anything, no one's ever heard of my sponsor, my sponsor's a little... Harley mechanic, and is the most spiritual person I know on the face of the earth. It's not that I have pride in a line of sponsorship, but I say that to to show that I'm smack dab in the middle, right where I'm supposed to be. I it's like a train, you know. I have a couple engines, my sponsor, grand sponsor, great grand sponsor, and they're guiding and and um, pulling me along at times. But, and then, and then I'm there, and then I have the women that I sponsor that they've hooked their little cars on too, and they're pushing me, and they keep me accountable. And I'm right where I'm supposed to be, right in the middle of the AA train. So it's like choo choo. <laughs> and it's a great place for me to be. Um, I have a home group. And if anyone is in Bismarck, North Dakota on a Tuesday night and would like to speak, see me. Uh, we can get you and put you to work as soon as you hit town. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, I was uh, raised in uh, Australia. My father is Australian. My mom is American. So I say that I'm half and half. And I, I've just been baffled my whole life. I don't know if I'm coming or going. But I was raised there, and I came over to America when I um, uh, 17, and then I went to visit North Dakota to visit my mom's side of the family. When I was there, I met a local farm boy, and I was 18, and within a month I was engaged, and a few months later I was married. 
And I went from a city of three and a half million to a little town of 350, and I thought I was going to be Laura Ingalls, and it was going to be fabulous. Um, and that's how my my uh, um, life in a, in America started. And I um, was restless, irritable, and discontent. And I thought that that. Um, marriage and, and that lifestyle was going to fix me, and it didn't. I the only thing maybe a little different about my story than other people, or the, certainly the women I work with, is that I didn't have a drop of alcohol until I was 28 years old. I know, crazy. I needed one long before that. <laughs> long before that. Uh, now I work with women that are 12, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, and they, they start drinking. But I was raised in a very, very strict religious home. My, my dad has a doctorate in theology and was a president of a, a religious college, and that's how I was raised. And we did not drink. In fact, I didn't know anyone growing up that drank. My parents still have not had a drop of alcohol. Not at all. I can't find any alcoholic in my family tree for five generations back. I am fifth-generation convict from Australia. My great-great-grandmother was arrested for prostitution and public intoxication. I think I'm a throwback or something, because for, for five generations, we don't have any history. She had some sort of maybe, perhaps, spiritual experience on that convict ship. She um, was arrested for stealing something, and, and I have all the court documents, and she was on this convict ship, shipped over to Australia for seven years for stealing a, a ring. And, uh, and on that ship, there was a, a missionary, and something happened on that ship. And from that time forward, there's no record of her uh, getting in trouble for drinking again. And yet before then, there was multiple arrests. So I don't know what happened, but it was a profound experience for her. And every generation carries the name in, in my family, every generation for five generations, multiple people in each generation call, carry the name of that missionary. His last name was Lee, L-E-I-G-H. And almost every child for five generations has carried that somewhere in their name, except for me. I don't know. <laughs> Somehow I always get left out. I don't know. But, um, so there's no, no evidence for five generations. I was not raised around alcohol. I had, uh, my parents are still together. I had a, a great childhood, uh, for the most part. Um, there was some, you know, it's not what makes me an alcoholic. And I didn't even know about alcohol until I took that drink. It was an innocent drink. Someone was staying at my house, and they uh, uh, decided that we should um, have a drink. And it was vodka and orange juice. That was my first drink. You know, I love Starbucks. I'm in Starbucks country, right? I love Starbucks, and I really love Diet Coke. And I cannot remember the first time I ever had a Starbucks or a Diet Coke. I am now 53 three years old. I got sober at 44. 53 years old, and I can remember a drink I took at 28 like it was yesterday. So she mixed this thing, vodka and orange juice, and handed it to me, and I took a sip. 
And I remember saying, oh my gosh, this tastes disgusting. Now I know why we don't drink. Why would anyone drink this sort of stuff? This stuff tastes like crap. But as I'm saying that, I'm taking another drink. And you all have heard it a million times, I'm sure. But all of a sudden, it went down. And it covered every raw nerve ending just like it was wrapped in velvet. And for the first time in my life, I could take that deep exhale. It was like, I imagine, you know on the, on the movies um, when there's a safe cracker, you know, and they have that stethoscope, and they hold the stethoscope up to the safe, and they do the little combination, and they do this way, and they hear that tumbler, and then they do it that way, and they hear the tumbler, and that way, and hear the tumbler, and then the safe opens up. That's exactly how I felt when it hit, and it went into every fiber of my being. It was like the tumblers of my life just click, click, click. And a whole new world opened up. I had, I felt like the genie had come out of the bottle. And I was like, oh my gosh, why were they keeping this from me? <laughs> Little did I know that very, very soon, and I was one of those ones that progressed very quickly, very fast. Little did I know that I was to climb into that bottle, that the genie had come out, and I was going to live there from 28 to 44. Within a year of that first drink, I was divorced, I was excommunicated from the church, and I was on my own. If you don't know what excommunicated is, it's like people sitting around here like this, and you take a vote, should we kick her out or not, and they all say yes, and I'm gone. At that point in time, I turned my back on any sort of religion, I turned my back on God. If I said the word God, there was profanity before it or after it. And I was done. And I was off to the races. And I didn't care. If you got in between me and the bottle, you lost. Every time. I would do anything and say anything. And I didn't know I was doing that. This is all in hindsight. All in hindsight. But I... um my family didn't know what to do. Like I said, I come from a very religious family, and they were going to have a family meeting. She's been excommunicated out of the church. What are we going to do? So they were going to have a meeting, and they were going to vote. My family's going to vote whether to disown me. And at that point, this is within my first year of drinking, and 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 I did what a self-centered, selfish alcoholic like me does. I do and say whatever I need to do and say to protect myself. And so what I did is I told them that my husband had been abusing me. And it was not true. And I carried that lie from 28 until I made amends into my sobriety around 45, 46 years old. And I'll get into the amends later, but I carried that lie and I destroyed people. I wish my story was a little bit more like Bonnie and Clyde, bank robbers, you know, all this stuff. But really, my story is all about an absolute selfish and self-centered alcoholic and the depths that this took me. It's not that I lowered my morals in alcoholism. I had no morals, and I was willing to do whatever I needed to do to get what I needed to get. 
So at 28, I was off and running. Uh, like I said, within a year, I was on my own. I took another hostage in there somewhere about, uh, I don't know, a year two, year two later after that. I uh, got married again, um, and I uh, destroyed that marriage as well. Um, he started saying ridiculous things like, don't you think you've had enough? <laughs> I'd just say, be quiet and eat your cereal. But, okay. That's a little exaggeration. Not much, but a little. But, um, but no, he'd start saying things like that. And, and I met him, and um, uh, I was a limo driver, and he was in the back of the limo, and that's how we, you know, and I thought he was like me. I thought, you know, and, and we partied for a while, and, and then uh, we ended up getting married, and then all of a sudden he got responsible on me. Like, you know, we gotta, we gotta tone it. We can't go out all the time. And immediately my, and this is within my second year of drinking, and immediately my drinking went underground. And I started hiding it, and I started doing geographics. And I, I immediately emotionally left that marriage. And I did other things to geographically get away from that marriage so I could drink the way I wanted to drink. I ended up going to law school. And the only reason why I bring that up, because it comes in important later, but um, in law school, um, and I did get a degree, uh, came, uh, so I left that marriage for about three years, then came back, and it's like, okay, babe, we're going to make it this time. You know, I'm, I'm changed, I'm going to get a good job, and, and here's an idea, let's, let's sell everything and move away, just you and me against the world. I, it's, 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 it's this place that's the problem. We just need to move. I talked the poor guy into selling everything he had, packing up and moving to nowhere, Nebraska, in the middle of nowhere. I'm not talking like the cities. I'm talking in the West, right? And there's just this little town. And we moved there, and I proceeded to... Um, my drinking had just absolutely escalated beyond anything that I even thought was was possible. Um, within about eight months, I, I was almost drinking myself to death. And after one really particular terrible night um, where the entire town almost burnt down, and that was not my fault. <laughs> I swear to God, I'm not exaggerating. The whole town, the army, everything was there. It was not my fault. It was natural <laughs> causes. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but that one particular night, and once again, um, my husband had to deal with things that no husband should have to deal with and see things that no husband should have to see. See, when I drink, I forget. I forget who I am, and I forget that I'm married. And um, I just share in a general way from the podium and uh, specifically with my sponsor, but um, I forget. I forget you. I forget I forget my loved ones. I forget. And it's all about me. And after that night, he said he had had enough. He's the healthiest Al-Anon person I've ever met. That's, he's never been to an Al-Anon meeting, but he's healthy, and he said, I'm done. I'm leaving, and when I come back after the weekend, I want you gone. I'm done. I had not told him this, but a couple weeks earlier I had applied for a different job in South Dakota and I had been accepted and I was secretly packing anyway. So, because he kept telling me to stop drinking. 
And, uh, and so I was, I was fine. And, uh, he left and I pulled up a, a, um, moving van thing and I loaded up whatever furniture I wanted to load up. And I included his custom, um, collector's Harley Davidson. I know. Uh, I'm still making amends for that one. And I took his Harley. I stole his Harley and, uh, took it with me. Later on, forged the title and sold it and bought myself a brand new one. Uh, so this is, the, <laughs> this is the type of things I do. No consideration at all. The Harley people hate me after this part of the story, I tell you. Um, but so I left and I went to South Dakota and I was, uh, the legal counsel for the Supreme Court Justice in South Dakota. And here I am. Um, I drink at this point every day. And I don't know what's wrong with me. I think it's you. I think it's him. I think I'll be happy when I get him, and then I get him, and then I'll be happy when I get rid of him and get him. I'll be happy when I get that promotion. I'll be happy when I get that certain dollar figure. I'll be happy when I get more power and prestige. I'll get happy when I get another sports car. The last few years of my drinking, I would trade out sports cars every nine months, thinking, well, that'll... I don't, I wasn't even thinking, but there was something, there was this huge hole inside of me. And I was trying to fill it with absolutely everything. And it would be a new car, or a new person, or a new whatever. And it never worked. I, uh, was at the top of my profession. And living a completely double life. At 40, um, drugs became a part of my life. Who does that? At 40? I mean, seriously. <laughs> We're supposed to be somewhat mature. But through the legal profession, I was introduced to cocaine. Apparently, that's what we do. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, alcohol and, 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 and the only reason I bring that up is because it allowed me to drink longer and more, you know? It was just, it was just there, but it was always alcohol. And my life became this double, I was living a completely double life. Here on one hand, I am the lawyer to the highest judge, you know, the, the chief judge, justice. And on the other hand, I'm running down to the reservation, which was an hour away from me, to buy what I needed to buy, to do what I needed to do. I couldn't party in the town I lived in because my job was so visible. So I would have to leave every weekend. And every weekend I'd either go to Rapid City, Deadwood, uh, which stays open all night, or down to the reservation. And then I would crawl back Sunday night. Every morning for the last five years of my drinking, I would wake up, I would come to... Waking up, that's a lie. I would come to. And I, I'm a blackout drinker. And I would have to look at my phone and try and figure out what I had done, where I had been, who I had talked to. Was there any clue? How did I get home? I would have to go into the garage and look at my car, see if my car was there, first of all. And then was there a dent? 
Was there anything wrong with my car? I had no recollection, and I didn't know what was wrong with me. I didn't know there was such a thing called blackouts. Nobody around me growing up had drank. And at this time in my life, the only people I ever surrounded myself with were the people who drank exactly like me. And by this time in my drinking, I had maybe three, four friends, three, about three, two or three <laughs> left. And they drank exactly like I did. So I didn't know anything was wrong. And in such a short time, from 28, and and this is getting to be around 40, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, I don't know what's wrong. And I would come to every morning and I would say, not again. Not again. I've got things to do. I have fun things to do. I have... All the sports equipment, mountain bikes. I lived right on the Missouri River. I could go from here to there and take my kayak and put it in the river and go paddling. I had a Harley in the garage. I had a convertible in the garage. I had, um, you know, all sorts of things I could have done. So tonight I'm going to do that. Tonight I'm going to take the bike out. Tonight I'm going to go kayak, whatever. But I'm not drinking tonight. I'd be sick every morning and I'd get into the shower and because of the other things other than alcohol that I was doing, cocaine, I would every morning I'd stand in the shower and and my nose would gush blood and I would have to stand there for 15 to 20 minutes until it would stop. Every morning. And that's how I would come to and that's how I'd start the day and I'd be sick and I'd be shaky and I couldn't eat. And I'd say, not tonight. I'm going to pay bills tonight. I'm going to do my laundry tonight. I'm going to go out kayaking tonight. And I'd go to work, and I had my own office, and I'd shut the door and try and stay away from people day after day after day because I was scared they'd smell something. And I would be sick, and I would try and do work, and I'm shaking. And finally around noon, maybe I'd get to get something to eat and keep it down. And then around 3.30, I'd start to feel human again a little bit. And then about 4.30, I'm looking at the clock, and I'm being like, whew, that was a tough day. I'm going to go, and I'm going to get a bottle, and I'm just, I'm just going to have one. And I'm talking to myself at this point. No one lives with me. No one lives with me. I'm not promising anyone. No one's on my case. But for some reason, intuitively, I I just sort of knew I'm just going to have one because that was a hard day and I work hard and I deserve this. And I can't breathe. And I need just one. So I'd go to the liquor store. I had four or five different liquor stores because heaven help me go in the same liquor store. They may know I have a problem like they care. So every day I'd go to a different liquor store. And, and funny, funny that I didn't just buy one bottle. My, my whole thing was I'd buy five, mm, no, four bottles of wine, the big ones, the double ones, and, or, or a big thing of, of vodka. And, um, and I would buy all of that, and my justification is, is, well, I'll just have one, and then I'll have enough for all week and, and the weekend. And I would go home, and I would open it, and I'd pour one drink. And I'd take that drink, and I'd have that exhale. And that spring in my gut would loosen a little bit. 
And then the funny thing would happen. I would change my mind. And that was all that happened that night again. And around midnight, one, I would pass out. And that was my life for the last four to five years of my drinking, alone, pass out, come to, and do it all over again. And all those bottles would be gone, you know, either the wine or the vodka. I never bought them at the same time. I don't know why. It was one or the other. But it would all be gone. So the next day I'd have to go again and go through that whole thing again. What I didn't realize was that I was an alcoholic. And like I mentioned, I didn't even know what an alcoholic was. I thought growing up, I guess I saw it on TV, but my idea of an alcoholic was this old guy, no teeth, don't know why, lives under a bridge and drank out of a bottle in a paper bag. Homeless. That was it. I can't be an alcoholic. I have a very good job. I'm highly educated. I've never been fired. I've never gotten a DUI. I've never been to jail other than to, as a lawyer, interview. I got to go, leave, after, right? I was, never went to jail, never been arrested. I'm not an alcoholic. And what I didn't understand is what an alcoholic was, what alcoholism is. And my life is like a textbook illustration of it. I wake up. I quit every single morning. I took a solemn oath to myself. I'm not going to do it. And I meant it as much as I mean it right now. I am not going to do that tonight. And yet I had no clue about the obsession of my mind. And I would go through that day And it would start working on me and start working on me and start working on me. And it comes up with an idea that makes sense to me, even though I had sworn that morning I wasn't going to do it. It could be something as simple as, that was a tough day. I'm stressed out. Someone annoyed me. Or something good happened. I did something really wonderful. It didn't matter if it was rainy or sunny, a good day, a bad day. I was happy, sad, whether I was in love or heartbroken. It didn't matter. Any idea works. I am i don't have triggers. I'm a walking trigger. I'm an alcoholic. It doesn't matter. There could be uh, not a cloud in the sky, right? Blue sky is not a cloud in the sky. Or it can be thundering. doesn't matter. But I come up with some idea that makes sense to me that even though I said I wasn't going to do it and I meant it, by that night I was doing it again. And I tell myself, and I meant it, it's j- I'm just going to do one. I'm just going to have one, and then I'm going to do laundry or bills or whatever. But I didn't understand the second part of being an alcoholic, and that is is. Well, As soon as I take any alcohol inside of me, I have an abnormal reaction from my the rest of my siblings. You know, we're raised exactly the same. I'm the lucky one. But I react differently because I don't have an off switch. And I get thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. I have never drank more than one can of pop at a time. (laughs) 
And I can down like four bottles of wine, the big kind, and, and start in on a fifth. I can't drink anything that much. But when I drink alcohol, I get thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. And there's never enough. So that was my life um, for the last several years. I also didn't think I was an alcoholic because I didn't drink in the mornings, but what I didn't realize is that didn't count Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> you know, and so I did drink in the morning. But what I want to, to make clear is that it wasn't how much I drank. It's not as often as I drank. Um, it's what happens to me when I do drink and when I say I'm going to stop and I can't stop. Those two parts, I've learned, make me an alcoholic. The obsession that comes up with an idea, the mental obsession comes up with an idea that makes it okay for me to pick up a drink even when I'm sober. And then the second part is when I start, I cannot stop. I used to sit in the rooms when I first came in and I would hear all the differences and, well, that's not me, that's not me, I've never got a DUI, I've never been to jail, well, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that, and I'm not an alcoholic. I came into AA, and uh, I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit, but I came into AA, and I had no clue what it was. And I sat in those meetings, and the, it, they would go around, and they'd say, Hi, I'm Joe, I'm an alcoholic. Hi, I'm Sue, I'm an alcoholic. And it would come around to me, and I would say, I'm Judith. <laughs> and I'd glare at the person next to me like, What? What's your problem? <laughs> I was not a happy camper. Because I would sit there, and I would listen, and I'd listen for the differences. And it's like, well, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. But as I sat and listened to your stories more and more and more, I was less and less able to deny the truth of that I felt like you felt when you drank, and more importantly, I felt like you felt when you didn't drink. If I could not drink successfully, or if I could drink successfully, I wouldn't be in AA. Seriously, if I could drink successfully... Or if I could not drink successfully, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't need to be. But I can't. I can't live with it, and I can't live without it. So what happened? Uh, my last, my last uh, drink drunk, uh, it was um, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, <clears throat> holiday weekend, and I have Monday off. And um, my life is a disaster personally. You know, you read those... Uh, de um, de de devilments. What is that? The de bedevilments. Thank you. And that was me. Personal relationships, chaos, drama. I mean, every area of my life, professionally and personally, were just, it's just a mess. And I didn't know what to do. But it was the holiday weekend. I had Monday off. I had to get out of town so I could party the way I wanted to party. And so I went to Deadwood, South Dakota. A gambling town, and uh, and and that weekend was um, quite the weekend. And I woke up on a uh, came to on a Sunday morning, and once again I was somewhere I didn't want to be. 
And I grabbed my stuff, and I just had to get out of there. For some reason, I just had to get out of there. I could not stand it a moment longer. And I grabbed my stuff, and I ran out and got into my sports car. I've still got illegal uh, substances in my bloodstream, and I'm still extremely intoxicated because I think I just passed out for an hour or so. I jump into my sports car, and I roar out of the parking lot, and I promptly run into somebody else. Here I am, the attorney for the highest court in the state, for the chief justice, and all of a sudden, I've just hit somebody. And I have illegal things in my system, and I'm over the limit. So I do what any self-centered, selfish alcoholic does of my type, and I ran. And I took off down that mountain, and I went down the mountain, and... I had what um, many of us call a moment of clarity. And my sponsor told me once, because I'm like, moment of clarity, you know, what's that? And he looked at me and he said, it's that moment when the liar in you is silenced long enough for you to see the truth about yourself. And as I came down that mountain, that's what I had. And all of a sudden I had a flashback to me before 28, where I was, <laughs> this just sounds so foreign to me, still singing in the choir, church choir, teaching Sunday school, being youth group leader, in church, living a, 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 you know, a normal life. And flash forward to doing the things that I was doing, having just broke the law in multiple ways and fleeing the scene of a crime. And feeling absolutely dead inside. And I just kept, I just like, how did you get here? Who are you? Who are you? How did this happen? And then the curtain went. It, it closed. I just got a glimpse of me before and me at that point in time. And it was gone. And I went down to Rapid City, down the mountain. And I, I, I was really shaken up because of the accident and I didn't know what to do and I'm shaking now because I'm needing some alcohol Um, and so I called a friend of mine and my friend had been in um, a drinking and and drugging buddy of mine and he had disappeared two months before and I don't know where he was but I was going through Rapid City and I had to go another two and a half hours to home. So I needed to stop in Rapid City and I called him and I said, Hey, I'm driving through town and, um, what you want to come in and visit with me? I haven't seen you for a while. And he said, Sure, where are you? And I said, Such and such a bar. It's 1030 on a Sunday morning. This is where I'm going to meet him. So, and back then you could smoke. So I'm sitting smoking in the bar. It was two for one. Bloody Mary's, so I had four. Those were mine. (laughs) He had to order his own. I had four. It was just economical, right? But that's not drinking in the morning, right? That's breakfast. So I'm sitting there drinking my four Bloody Mary's, and he walks in. And I didn't even recognize him. And now... Now that I, you know, I love this book and, um, and I love the story of when Bill opened the door and Evie was standing there and he was in his right mind and his eyes were shining. And when my friend walked in, it was like the sun came in after him. I'm not making it up, but I could not even hardly recognize his physical appearance. He had been super heavy into meth. He's a 
chronic alcoholic, but he, he tried to use meth to cure his alcoholism. Didn't work so great. We try anything before AA, right? I was, <laughs> this seems like a good idea. Um, so, of course, he looked horrible when we, and we ended up not being able to hang out with each other. He blamed my alcoholism. I was unbearable to be around, and I blamed him. His, I'm like, you are really bad. You need to sober up while I'm drunk, right, saying that. But our, it destroyed even our friendship. So I hadn't seen him for a while, and he walked in, and he just glowed. His eyes were alive and shining, and, and it, he had so much peace and joy just pouring out of him. And he sat down opposite me. Uh, and I asked, you know, well, what are you going to have? And he goes, nothing. I'm good. And he started to tell me where he had been for the last two months. And I got to hear the rest of his side of the story about a year ago. And I never knew this. But when I called him that Sunday morning, he was sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he saw his phone vibrate and he looked at it and he saw it was me. And he didn't know what I wanted, but he knew what I needed. And he got up out of that meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and at two months sober came into that bar and sat and watched me drink and told me what he had been doing for the last two months. He had been hanging out with you guys. And not once did he lecture me about my drinking. He just told me, and I seriously can't really remember anything he said. (laughs) I can't but I'll never forget what he looked like the transformation spoke louder than anything and so he told me about this thing called AA I had no clue what it was I thought it was American Airlines and I'm like well I don't know but that you know I, I was so dead inside At that point in time, I was so dead. It was like I had this gangrene of the soul. And I was just dying. And I was looking at this across the table. Well, I had my four four Bloody Marys and went and drove home again. um, And I got home and, and I knew I had Monday off. And to this day, you know, it's like I get, I get goosebumps, seconds and inches. Because in my mind it was, you know, the liquor stores are closing soon. You have Monday off. You don't have to be at work on Tuesday. That's a lot of time. Because at that point I didn't go a day without drinking. But there's this AA thing he's talking about. But alcohol, AA, alcohol, AA. And to this day I don't know how my car got to you guys. I don't. And I walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous intoxicated because I had continued to drink. And no one turned me away. No one did anything other than I, I came in late, sat by the door, and as soon as they were finished and they were like huddling up to do that crazy thing and prayer, and I'm not praying, I started heading for the door. And there was this guy, his name was Gary, and he body blocked me. I mean, I'm, I am not kidding. He body blocked me and he stuck out his hand and he said, hi, my name's Gary. And you know, I guess it's just instinct because I didn't want to shake no one's hand, but someone puts their hand out and I shook it and he wouldn't let it go. And he grabbed it and he goes, come on, have you, do you have one of these books? 
He goes, this is a big book. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, I'm a lawyer. That ain't a big book. Okay. You want, let's call it the blue book. Okay. I swear I, I called it the blue book for months. No one caught on. So I gave up. But uh, he goes, here, have one of these. Take it home. He stole. My first big book was stolen out of the club. Handed. He goes, read it and bring it back. So I went home that night, and I had the, that day off, and I did stay sober that day. I did not get out of bed. And I, 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 I was scared to get out of bed because I knew I'd go to the liquor store. And that first day, I read the first 164 pages of this book. And I hated every word. It was the stupidest thing I'd ever read in my entire life. I took the book, I whipped it across the room, slammed it against the wall, and I was like, that is so stupid. Someone needs to rewrite that. So I hung in there until 8 p.m. the next night, and I went back. Oh, and they'd given me a 24-hour coin. I love that you guys do that. And they'd given it. I didn't have to come up front. I wouldn't have, you know, but they gave it to me. And I, and, and I was thinking, do I have to tell them that I'm not sober? And I really, really wanted to earn that chip. And the crazy way I was thinking is, if I can stay sober for 24 hours, I must not be having a problem. (laughs) Who thinks that? If I can just make 24 hours. And I brought the chip back the next night, and I was expecting them to ask me about it. And they never did. But from that next day, I have not had to, to that day, January the 19th, uh, my first meeting was on January the 18th, but I was intoxicated. So I count my sobriety date from January the 19th. And I have not had a drink since, and I'm coming up on 10 years because of what you guys have taught me. And my life has never been the same. However, it didn't start out so well. Because while I had not taken a drink since that day, I hated everything about this. And if you're new tonight, don't worry if you hate it. Just do it. Because it works. I hated you all. I hated the stupid meetings. I don't like people. I'm not that friendly. I, oh, the, the, the sayings on the walls. Easy does it. Think, think, think. And uh, all this stuff. First things first. Yeah. It's like, it's like Mother Goose threw up all over the place, you know. <laughs> what is that? So, so I hated it, and I sat in your meetings, and I looked at the, the steps, and I'm like, all right, step one, mm, all right. I finally, after two weeks, two and a half weeks, I finally said, I'm Judith, and I'm an alcoholic, because I could no longer deny it. And at that point, it went into the innermost being, or, or my innermost being. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, I knew what was wrong with me. And it was actually sort of a relief to know that I wasn't crazy. And that was a relief. But then I didn't know what to do about it because after step one, there is no steps I can do. Because I am not doing... And you're not fooling me with the higher power thing. I know what you're talking about. It's God. Been there, done that. And you guys will wise up too one day. That's how I felt. I came in, I was hostile, I was arrogant, and I refused to do anything. And I sat, I did not miss a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous for an entire first year. At 8 p.m. every night I was sitting in these chairs, and I was hostile, and I was full of rage, and I would sit there. 
I was even a little bit of service. I washed the ashtrays. We had smoking meetings back then. But I was dying. I was dying in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I refused to get a sponsor. I refused to work the steps. And I would sit there. For one hour every day, I was able to breathe because I was sitting with you guys. And every day I would go to work and I'd sit in my fancy office and I had my fancy, you know, couple grand suits and my sports car out in the parking lot and my office had mosaic tile on the floor and the marble and the brass and the mahogany and I had a window and I would sit there. My program of recovery was I would sit there every day and I would rock. Just don't drink. Just don't drink. Just don't drink. I would not wish that year on my worst enemy. It was the most agony I have ever experienced. And I would literally sit there and hide in my office and I'd watch the clock and every 15 minutes, just don't drink, just don't drink. And I would just be wound so tight that finally at 8 p.m. I'd run to you guys. I'd collapse in that chair like the wolves were chasing me. And finally, I would be able to breathe. And I would stay there for an hour, and I'd go home, and I'd go to bed, and I'd get up to do it again the next day. Just don't drink. Just don't drink. That was my program of recovery. The women prisoners from the women's prison there, they would bring them over, and we had beautiful gardens at the Capitol, and there would be rose gardens and all these things, and I'd sit there as I'm rocking, and I'd look out that window, and I'd watch these women trim the roses and and be out there and garden in their orange prison uniforms, and I would envy them because to me they were free. I didn't know that you can get loaded in jail, prison. <laughs> I just didn't. I thought, I, in my thinking, I envied them because their fight was over and I wanted to be free like them. In all my fancy stuff, in my fancy office, I am envying them in their prison uniforms. So that's the state I was in and I was miserable and I didn't have a program. I didn't have your program. I had my program. And all of a sudden I'm like, well, it must be this job, this job that I love, this job that I adored. It must be this job. I need more. I didn't have a sponsor, didn't have anyone to talk to about the wisdom of this. And so I was offered a better, more prestigious job. It was with the federal government, with the U.S. Attorney's Office as a prosecutor. And my job description was going to be prosecuting violent and drug-related crime on the reservation. Now, I don't know if you were paying attention earlier. (laughs) But where did I go (laughs) to get what I needed? And I'm just full of ego and self-will run riot, and I'm like, more power, more prestige, better paycheck, and yeah, I'm going, you know, because federal is so much better, and this is it. This is the ticket. Uh, and so I took this job. The first case across my desk, I knew really well. And you can't do that, and I'm certainly not going to show up in court and have him look at me and go, hey, peace out. <laughs> 
Or say, Your Honor, I can tell you a few things about your prosecutor here. So I couldn't sign any documents or go in, and I'm scared. I'm, at this point, uh, 11 months dry, no program, and I'm terrified. And what I did is I said, I have a conflict of interest with this person. I can't prosecute him. And they said, what? And I was like, well, you know, um, we're all related on the reservation. I'm not Native American, okay? I'm just, I'm just saying whatever I need to say. Uh, we're all relatives. And, and all hell broke loose. It was like sirens almost going off. Um, the U.S. attorney flew in on his plane. They hauled me in. There was three FBI agents, two U.S. assistant attorneys. I was a U.S. assistant attorney and then the U.S. attorney. So six men in suits. And the only thing that was missing were the bright lights, you know. Um, for three hours I was questioned. And um, at the end of, of that, I, I, I stuck to my my story. And at the end, they said, you haven't heard the last about this because they weren't buying anything, any of it, because you don't know people like that unless you do what we do. And there's no way I could have known him personally. And um, they said, don't bother coming back. We can't fire you right now. They had no proof. But you haven't heard the last from us and go home and don't bother coming back. And I went out to my car and I sat there and I sobbed. My life was over and this was sobriety. Thank you very much. And the first thought in my mind was, well, because everything was, I, when I got sober, I was $90,000 in credit card debt and other debt. Everything I had because I spent the money what I needed to spend it on drugs and alcohol. And I lived on credit cards. My car was monthly payments. My Harley was on monthly payments. Everything I owned, I didn't own. I had three weeks before rent was due on my house. In three weeks, I was going to be on the street. They're going to repo my car, repo my bike, repo everything I have, and I have no job, and I'm pretty sure my legal career is over at this point. So I'm sitting in the car, and my best thinking was, I'll go down to the reservation and do what I need to do until I can't take it anymore, and then I'll end it quick. When people say my best thinking got me to AA, that is not my story. My best thinking gets me drunk and dead. I'm going to go down to the reservation and do what I need to do to get what I need to get until I can't take it anymore. On the heels of that thought came another thought that wasn't of me. And that thought was, I hear they have really good AA in Rapid City. Why don't you try it? So I packed up my car, and I headed to Rapid City, where my friend was. And I walked in there, and that AA community wrapped their arms around me. They saw me walking in at 11 and a half months dry, and they saw that I was about to die. Because at that point, that rocking, that just don't drink, just don't drink program had got me to the brink of suicide, and I had a loaded pistol, and I was going to use it. I was dying. And they wrapped their arms around me and they appointed me a sponsor. And my sponsor took me through the steps. I was in the ER of AA. 
And he got me through the steps, and one was pretty easy. Two was pretty difficult because I had said I will never bend the knee. And I had to start looking around and writing a concept of some sort of higher power, whether it was peace. He started very simply with me. Can you give your life to peace? Can you follow the principles of peace? I was very academic. And he got me into the book. And he took me to the part where Bill said, or Ebby, I like to imagine, slams his fist down on the kitchen table and says, fine, why don't you choose your own conception of God? We always think it's so spiritual. I like to think he was arguing with me. I've had it. Just go find your own concept of God. And I did, and I started very simply, and I started developing a concept that I was able to give my thinking and my actions over to, because isn't that what your will in your life is? In step three, your thinking and your actions. And I had to find a, a concept of a higher power that I could cooperate with that I could access because there's no way I'm stuck on step one if I don't get step two. And, and I'm not saying I understood anything. I still don't understand my higher power at all. And thank goodness I don't need to. I just need to have some sort of concept of something I can have access that's greater than I am and that I can turn my will and my, my thinking and my actions over to. So then I get to to step three, and I have to be able to be willing to turn my life and my my will and my thinking, my actions over to this higher power. And I was not happy because I'm wanting to be the boss. And my sponsor says, is it possible that you're wrong about all that religion and all that God? Is it possible that you're wrong? Well, I didn't want to seem arrogant, so I said, okay, it's possible. And so he said, all right, I want you to, you know, and he didn't do this this way with uh, the most, most people, but he said, I want you to get down every day and say that third step prayer. And I was like, are you kidding me? I just told you I don't believe in God. I told you, you know, that I'm not going, you know, do, what, you want me to be a hypocrite? And he said, I've, I, I know you and I know your list of character defects. He said, in looking at that long list, hypocrite is way down here. I think we'll be fine. <laughs> so so the, I got that. I, I said, fine. And the only reason why I did it is it, it was born out of desperation. I wanted what he had. And, um, and so I had to do what he did. And any time I would start to negotiate or debate or try and push back, he'd just look at me with love and say, how free do you want to be? I'm like, oh, damn it. <laughs> Fine. And I would do it. My fourth and fifth um, step, he, um, I was sure that AA was going to fail me at that point in time. I was absolutely sure it would fail me. That once, you know, we all have that story, once you knew how bad I was, you're not going to want me around. I mean, we all, I'm kind of terminally unique, and, and that's what I think. But it wasn't like that at all. And for the first time, one person knew everything about me. I used to have, these people know this, and those people know that, and heaven help if I get all these groups together and they start talking. But for the first time, I had one person that knew everything about me. 
and he still loved me, and he still cared. As uh, I got through the steps um, on my amends, and I just want to share two or one quickly with you, and that was with my first husband um, and the lie that I had told. I was able to make amends to him and explain to him that I was an alcoholic. He didn't know what was wrong with me. After a year, I I just looked at him and I said, I'm leaving. And he stood in front of me with tears running down his eyes and he said, why? And I just looked at him with the hard look of an alcoholic that has no reason and I can't explain it. And nothing makes sense, even in my own mind, but I'm just done. I gotta go, cause I gotta go drink. And I left him, and he never really heard from me after that. And so I was able to tell him about alcoholism, and I was able to tell him that, that it wasn't him, and, and I made amends, and part of my amends is that I always say that he was a wonderful man of character and integrity, and he did nothing. I was also able to make amends to his parents, who did not want to see me. I had robbed them of their son, of their son's reputation. And they did, especially my mother-in-law, ex-mother-in-law. <laughs> you know, that mama bear. Whew, she did not want to see me. But they let me come, and I was able to make amends to them, and I was able to, let, uh, to give them their son back. And I was able to say that he had done nothing wrong. And I was so glad that I didn't delay on that amends because they didn't, one of the reasons they didn't want to see me is he hadn't been, my ex-father-in-law wasn't feeling well. And I got to go and spend a day or an, a, an afternoon, a couple hours with them. And I made my amends. And then about a month later, they discovered that he was riddled with cancer. And a few months later, he was dead. And had I delayed, I would not have been able to give him that gift of knowing that he raised a good son. And his son, you know, in the back of his mind, I'm sure it was like, could my son have done that? And I robbed him of that peace. And I was able to give him his son back. Today, how's my life? Um, I no longer practice law. (laughs) Go figure. I no longer have a sports car. And I no longer have a Harley. So if you want what I have, <laughs> I have nothing. No, it's so funny. It's so funny because, you know, you hear stories and it's like I was living under a bridge and I didn't have this and I didn't have that. And in sobriety, I got it all back. Okay, I'm the reverse. I had everything. And today, uh, externally, I have none of that. I, uh, I traded that convertible into a seven-passenger van because it's like one more woman can fit in that van. Where are we going to go now? What meeting are we going to? What conference? Get in the van. Get in the van. Get in the van. And uh, I no longer have an income. And uh, I teach once in a while, a couple times a year. And what I get to do is I, I just get to help other women. And uh, and it's it's the absolute bright spot of my life. Absolute bright spot. So I I don't have any more power, possessions, and prestige. But what I have internally is I don't want to die every day when I wake up. I like myself. I don't want to rip my skin off and get a, just escape from me anymore. I'm at peace and I'm at ease. 
and the voices that used to just go like crazy in your head, they've calmed down, they're quiet. I am richer than I've ever been in my life in what really matters. Um, It is a way of life that I have found that... um, that fills my life with meaning. There's one little section, and then I'm going to quit. I'm probably over. Um, Because if... (laughs) I hope I said something useful tonight and something that someone can relate to, but I think that the book always says it better than I do. And there's this one section that describes me and my life after AA. And it says... AA has filled my days with friends, laughter, growth, and the feeling of worth that is rooted in constructive activity. My faith in and contact with my higher power shines more brightly than I dreamed it could. Those promises I thought were impossible are a viable force in my life. I am free to laugh all of my laughter free to trust and be trusted, free to both give and receive help. I am free from shame and regret, free to learn and grow and work. I have left that lonely, frightening, painful express train through hell. I have accepted the gift of a safer, happier journey through life. They say that uh, God pays God's employees well. And I would have to say that today I am well overpaid. And I want to thank you all for my life. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.